good morning and welcome to yet another Automotive Hour. Got myself and Brian Terry right here ready to go, rip-roaring and ready to answer your questions. That's right. Now is a great time to call also. There you go. Go and give us a call. 291-6901. That'll get you right straight up to the top of the list, get your questions answered for you, anything you might need to know. And just in case you don't want to call in. Or something maybe occurs to you after we go off the air today or maybe even next week at midnight. You can always get your questions answered any time of the day or night by going to our website, which is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Right. There is a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the little form, and send it on in. Couldn't be any easier. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now let's send Brian over there to give you a personal answer. Um, I don't know about sending <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to, but uh, I can't yeah, do it. Ain't <laughs> we were talking last week how this week we would talk a little bit about some automotive acronyms. Right. Such as right. that. You know, and that's all the little old ABS and MIL and all the different things like that that you hear shops talk about and all that. They tend to abbreviate it because it's a little faster, a little easier for them. Right. And most people really don't understand what those little acronyms mean. Right. And people being what people are, it, you know, I know when there's something that I don't understand, particularly in my, if I'm in an environment where I'm really not sure, but I don't want to ask a bunch of questions because I don't want to give the illusion that I don't know. <laughs> okay. Right. So, you know, or actually not the illusion, give the, the proof that I don't know, <laughs> but people can be a little reluctant to ask. Sometimes. Sure. So that's why I thought we could talk a little bit about that, maybe get that information out for folks who don't know or have always wondered. That's it. And if you have an acronym that you're interested in, just give us a call and we'll try to cover it for you there today. You go. And I've got a whole list here of acronyms that I have gotten off of our data site at work. So right. we'll have a few to go over if nobody gives us a call. There you go. And let's see. We got a line ringing here. We got Herb online. Good morning, Herb. Good morning. Yes, Good morning. SRS. That wasn't, didn't know you was going to have that topic, but yes, sir. supplemental restraint system. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. I got a Honda that I know you got to watch what you say because somebody might just want to file charges or something. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, that girl got killed the other day on a Honda, and I was planning to go to Seattle in mine in mm-hmm. 2012, and I just got a recall on it the other day. Mm-hmm. And so I got under there and unplugged the fuse that said S. RS, supplemental right. restraint system. Yes, okay. And I assume that killed all the airbags. Pretty much, yes, sir. Once you pull the fuse, what it's going to do is cut power to the little computer that runs it, and a light will come on on a dash tell you it's been disarmed, so it's, well, it's not going to function after that. When you turn the key on normally, it comes up with the airbag. Correct. That's a bulb now, check. And now it don't even come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it may not, but it ought to come on all the time on. when the key when it's in run position. Yeah, light should well, be on constantly. Yeah, well, my Dodge did that, but this one don't do it. Really? It just, just, just don't come on, period. When you turn the key on, it don't come on. It just it don't come on. Doesn't you know, so. check or anything. Huh, that's uh, strange. Yeah, most of them that I've ever seen, what they do, they'll come on and let you know it's been disarmed, but possibly cutting the power just kills the computer and it can't generate the signal to tell it. But that's kind of weird. Cause I know everyone I see, we'll get them in a case where the fuse is blown yeah. and that light is on constantly. Right. You know, it's, it's generally going to turn it on all the time i'd rather get you might want to make sure you got the right fuse to her yeah, that may well, be a srs fuse but it may not be the only srs well, it, fuse it the only one i could find is marked that but yeah uh, i'll double check but it did it when the first turned it done it it come on 
just for a second. And right. The light disappeared, and right. it's never been back on since. Wow. Yeah, because I think that light should be on if it's disarmed. It, it, yeah. it generally is going to always want to give you a warning that, hey, the system's not operating. And yeah. fuse being out is a way that it's that's, not operating. So that would make way, the, way more sense. That's the way the, uh, the book kind of read. But yeah, yeah, that's it, how it ought to do. It, so I would uh, probably get that checked. That's... Well, if it's under recall, and you go ahead and get it taken yeah, you, care of. Yeah, you need to get it taken care yeah. of regardless because it is a be, nice feature to have. It's a mid, no parts available mid-summer. Yeah, I okay. know. They, they had such an avalanche of those y'all at one time. It's just more than they could get produced. To, and and, and, I told a woman, I said, I'm going to Seattle in that thing in mid-May. She said, well, it's up to your discretion. But she said, you can get a rental. I said, how much is that going to cost? She said, they're free. <laughs> Really? So I uh, said, well, that beats driving my own vehicle. There so. you go. There you go. <laughs> That's even better. Yeah, all you, got, all you got to do is drive this one and put gas in it. You ain't going to maintain it or anything. Uh, but she said, got driver's license and proof of insurance. So um, Sweet. Well, yeah. yeah. And she said, it depends on how, what's available is what you get. But, yeah. Um, well, I mean. Well, go see. Yeah. yeah. I went out there one time to Volkswagen. I guess I can. I can go with most anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I'm a big old boy. Hey, you go. All right, Herb. All right, thank you. Thanks, Carl, right, man. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive art, we'd love to have you. Go ahead and give us a call, whether you're in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or Bangor, Maine. Hey, you give us a call. We'll try to help you out and point you in the right direction. There you go. And, you know, we were talking uh, about the acronyms and stuff, and we've got an email here from Dave, uh, one of our regular listeners. In fact, Dave's been a customer for years for, and years. Yeah, a long time. I think Dave was coming to the shop back when we were on North Foster Drive. So that's, that's been a while. That's yeah, been 25 years ago. 24, 25 years ago at, at very right. least. And he asked multiple questions about it, about the different acronyms yeah the the agco auto acronym show okay triple <laughs> a <laughs> if we could put that one together he says control modules are all control modules a computer and the answer to that is yes they are but not necessarily in the form that you would think of as a computer for instance a computer as we think of it has an input and output and a monitor and a keyboard and all that right they are not a computer in that way but they are a computer in that they take information from the network they process it and they put it back out to another computer or whatever so basically all control modules are rudimentary computers in one form or another correct and some of the acronyms for computer the engine computer for instance might be a pcm or an ecm power control module or electronic electronic control module depending on what application it is it could also be listed as a, with B, an, a BCM, which is a brake control module. Yep. Uh, well, you got or, an EBCM, which is an electronic, electronic brake control, control module. Then you right. got a BCM, which is a body control module. Right. So it does get very, very confusing, and we're going to go into that, and elaborate quite a bit more. But he also asked about CV joints. Does every car have one? And not every car has them, but the vast majority do. Most of your front wheel drives mm-hmm. have a have a CV joint assembly of some kind. And even some of your rear-wheel drives do use CV joint. Do use a CV joint. Right. And a CV joint is sort of like a universal joint on steroids. Correct. A universal joint allows you to turn and still transmit power. But a CV joint does the same thing, but it can operate over a much wider range. Whereas a universal joint can only operate over a 3 to 4 degree range, a constant velocity or CV joint can operate over a 20 to 30 degree range. It's right. just a much heavier, more robust, more complicated type of an assembly. So I hope that answered that question. He also said PCV, excuse me, PCV valves, which is positive crankcase ventilation, right. has been around since the early 70s. And do cars still use them? Yes, 
A lot of cars do, although some don't. don't. Some of the newer stuff, like the newer Chevy pickups, have sort of a modified, it doesn't use a PCV valve anymore, but it still has a crankcase ventilation system using an orifice tube. Right. Instead of a spring and a ball, check ball and a seat to close, open and close, it uses this various, this orifice. Right. As a regulated regulator. Right. So it can regulate, and the computer is smart enough on these to where it idle, even though it's got extra air coming in, it can allow for that. Right. And he's got a couple others there, too, that are real good. We're going to cover all those in just a minute. But let's see if we catch a couple of our phone calls. We've right. got Mary's been patiently holding. Good morning, Mary. Hi. Good morning. Yes, good ma'am. morning. Hi. I am at my wit's end. Okay. Uh-oh. I have a 2006 Lincoln LS. Mm-hmm. Back in December, it ran hot. I took it to a shop. They mm-hmm. fixed it. They replaced the manifold gasket. Mm-hmm. They replaced the housing and the thermostat, and they refilled the radiator. Yeah, that's pretty common stuff. Yes, mm-hmm. ma'am. Okay. It has been pouring antifreeze out of the overflow hose since then. Mm-hmm. The reservoir is showing almost no antifreeze left in it. Mm-hmm. I've taken it to two other mechanics, three places. They said there's nothing wrong. No, there's no, <laughs> that's not you, true. <laughs> you're not going to the right place. Yeah, I you think know, so. I think you're right. <laughs> what happens very often, Mary, and, and I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings to you, but oh lord, when that particular engine gets hot, and there's when it got hot with the original problem. It can blow what they call the head gaskets. And when we talk about a blown head gasket, there are different degrees that a head gasket can blow or leak or cause issues. And what happens is that now hydrocarbons, or not hydrocarbons, actually carbon dioxide starts to leak into the cooling system. And normally, at first, it won't do a whole lot. But then the further you drive it, it'll start to overheat on you, which will cause the fluids to boil out of the overflow and all those sorts of things. They need to go in and do what they call a carbon dioxide test on the engine to see if we're getting any carbon dioxide into the cooling system. And unfortunately, that's not a foolproof test. In other words, if it comes back positive, then you definitely have something wrong. But if it comes back negative, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have anything wrong. It's just not showing up at that moment. But I would almost bet you that that's what you've got, particularly if the engine got really hot, because those engines did not like to get hot at all. I tell you, if you go to my website and just go to a little search bar and type in the word head gasket, it's got a two-part article in there with all kinds of information on it. It'll give you a much, much better understanding about the way it works. But, see, the problem is once the engine gets hot, the damage is done. So even though you went in and fixed the problem that caused it to get hot, the collateral damage is still there. may not even show up immediately. It may show up in time and just get worse and worse and worse as it goes on. But, no, if it's boiling the water out of the oil flow, you you got something going on that's going to cause more damage. So, Well, isn't the manifold gasket the same as a head gasket? No, No, ma'am, not at all. It's not even close. That's a different part. Yeah, the manifold sits on top of the two cylinder heads, and then way down below that are the head gaskets between the cylinders and the head. So, no, there are a number of gaskets. You've got valve cover gaskets. You've got thermostat housing gaskets. you Almost any two parts that come together on the engine are sealed a by a gasket of some sort. And the original problem was likely to be the manifold gasket or thermostat gasket because those were common on that vehicle. But once the water leaked out, the coolant leaked out, the engine overheated, which caused other damages. So it's not that they did anything wrong. They fixed what they saw. They just didn't go quite deep enough and didn't yeah, get everything. Yeah, they said it was the housing and thermostat. It, could it be also they didn't mix the antifreeze with distilled water? Well, that would be a I've problem. Manual. <laughs> yeah, that would be a problem, but it wouldn't be this problem. Yeah. See, you what know, happens when that's, that's an overtime type issue? There. Right. When that engine overheats, that those two metal pieces expand at different rates, 
Uh-huh. And what happens is it crushes that head gasket because that's the only place it has to expand to. Right. As it oh. gets too hot. And when it cools off, it contracts. Well, they don't. They both contract back to the original size, but now the head gasket is crushed smaller than it used to be. So now it has a port, a place for the hydrocarbons to escape. Right. So what happens, the hydrocarbons get into the coolant, which overheats the engine. So it just gets, and each time it gets hot, it does it worse. And so it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse. Sooner or later, it'll destroy the engine. Right. Oh, Lord. Can this be fixed at this point? Most likely. It would just depend on how hot it's gotten and how many times it's gotten hot. Only one time. I yeah. watched that needle. I mean, watch. it can be fixed regardless by virtue of the fact you can always add, you know, put another engine in it if, if just absolute worst case. But most of the time, you can remove the cylinder heads. Sometimes the head will be warped because it uses an aluminum cylinder head. The head can warp, but you can generally send those out to a machine shop who can either straighten them or they can machine them back true. Then you can put new head gaskets, and then you know, it'll be back like it was as long as no other damage has occurred. But the key is, Mary, you need to act quickly because the longer it goes, the harder and harder it's going to get to fix it, and the more, the more, and more expensive. expensive it's going to get right. to fix it. Yeah. Is it a very expensive fix? Pretty much, yes, yeah. ma'am, because the whole engine's got to come apart. So you, oh, you can be up in the, in the four-digit figure area. Could I postpone it and just until I get another car and just only by not driving the car? Yeah. <laughs> as long as you park, don't drive it, park the car in the driveway. Oh, it'll, it'll last as long as you want. <laughs> oh, so every freeze every time ain't gonna help. That's no, not gonna help. It's just gonna get worse and worse because you know the coolant's starting to leak into the oil eventually, and oh, it all gets oh. in the cell. I mean, the coolant gets in the cylinders. Right. The longer eventually, it goes, the, the more damage. Yeah, it's it'll take do. the catalytic converters out. It's just a perfect storm of stuff going wrong. Oh. And like I said, go into my my website and just type in head gasket. It'll bring a big article, and I mean you can kind of peruse through it. You don't have to read every word of it, but it'll give you a real clear picture of what's going on. Okay. All righty. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank oh, you. Lord. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. All right, two nine one sixty nine zero one is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we got to take a quick little break. Ben, if you hold on, you'll be straight up after this break. I'm here with David, actual Agco Automotive customer and owner of a 98 Suburban with 434,000 miles on it. And counting. That's amazing. How did you do that? Well, as an airline pilot, I know the importance of regular maintenance schedules. That and having a great team of mechanics, just like the guys at Agco. So Agco has helped keep your car running? All of my cars. Wow. So, folks, if you're looking to keep your late model vehicle on the road longer, take it to Agco once a year for a general inspection. That way, the Agco team can catch any potential problems early before they become expensive repairs down the road. Yeah, David, I've done a little piloting myself. Really? Well, it was one of those radio-controlled planes you fly off of Burbank, (laughs) but I could feel the power. (laughs) Oh, I bet you could. That's really close to a 747. I know, right? So, folks, schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. We sure appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 291-6901. And that's exactly what Ben did. Good morning, Ben. Thanks for holding. Good morning, Louis and Brian. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I've got a 2006 Acura MDX. You helped me a couple of years ago. It was wearing out tires. I think I finally got that issue taken care okay, of. Okay, good. It's got 208,000 miles on it. It's really it's a great car. I've just got a tiny little issue. It's kind of mm-hmm. got me flummoxed. Okay. 
it for sure once a week it will do this, and it always does it at exactly the same intersection. Okay. I can't get it to do it most any other time, but it will fall flat on its face when the light turns green. You give it gas, it just it, the motor cuts power for about two seconds, and then it'll pick up, and the traction control light will come on on the dash. Wow. And then go right back off. Hmm. And it only does it, like I said, once a week at the same intersection. I've had it do it maybe three or four times mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. over the last six months at right. other intersections, but it always does it at this one intersection. And that intersection doesn't have gravel or anything that would right. cause it to spin. Is, yeah. it, uh, but, is it a common intersection that you drive every day from point A to point B? No, it's one I do once a week on the way home from church. Yeah. I stop okay. at this intersection, wow. and when we hit it red and have to start back up, it just falls. But you're, you're always, normally, when when you got that hesitation, that is generally going to be some kind of a airflow meter issue on that car. However, when you say the trash control light comes on, it almost sounds like we're getting some slip, or it thinks it's getting some slip, and it's shutting down power, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is what it will do. I'm at a loss, Ben, why... If, unless you could maybe go and stand in the intersection and have maybe your wife drive the car through and kind of try to see what's going on with it. The only other thing is if you got a camera where you could film it and put it in slow motion, but I would think for some weird reason it's got to be picking up some slip. Maybe it's an uneven pavement or something like that. I mean, that's but what it's... you do. You cross the four lane, mm-hmm. and it is, you know, you go down and then back up to the other lane. Now, unless the car is kind of getting a little bit airborne for a split second. You know, the suspension is traveling and jouncing, rebounding. If tires leave the ground for a thousandth of a second and that tire turns, it's going to throw the trash control, which is going to shut your power down. So it could be just the dynamics of that particular intersection. Maybe it's subtle and you don't really notice it, but, you know, if it's a fast jounce rebound where the tire is breaking traction for a second, that's the only thing that could come to me that would be peculiar to one intersection that would cause that kind of an issue. It's as smooth as can be, other than it is irregular. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, like I said, it's not something that's a big deal now. Well, yeah, it's not I a big just, issue, but you may have to wait till it gets a little more consistent so you can put more factors in there. But I almost, if the trash control light's coming on and it's shutting power, it's because the wheel is losing traction at some point. What we could do, of course, I think you're calling from out of state, aren't you, Ben? Yes. Yeah, I Ohio. Thought, Ohio, okay. I was going to say, what we do, we've got a device we can put in the car that'll record the event. In other words, when it happens, I can hit a button. And not only will it record that instant, it'll go back about 30 seconds before and 30 seconds after the event. Then Mm -hmm. I could watch the wheel speed sensors and all that stuff, and I could see if a tire is losing traction. You're going to have to find somebody who's got something like that and have them drive the car through the intersection record what's happening what's really cool is you can put this up on a computer screen and you can and you graph can, it yeah you can graph it you can break it down in in one thousandth of a second increments and sit there and watch every event on every sensor and you can see why trash control is being commanded is the signal dropping out completely is the sensor speeding up and thinking that there's a slipping wheel you know what things are going on here that's causing it to do this that beyond having something like that you just got to wait till it gets more consistent all right well, thank you very much, guys, and I'll try to see if my mechanic has something like yeah, that. Yeah, most people who have a laptop-based scan tool with a graphing capability could do that, and they just have to set it for the sensors they want to watch, drive it, hit the trigger when it occurs, and they can record what they call a movie 30 seconds before, 30 seconds after, go back 
put it on a screen and watch every sensor in slow motion to see which one or ones are commanding that trash control. Okay. All righty. All right. Thank you. All right, Ben. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would love to have you. That's one of those things you just never really, just by the time you think you've heard it all. <laughs> yeah, something else happened. Yeah, I remember years and years ago, we had a lady who had a car that when she would go to visit her mother, the car would not start. Okay. And this was just the most obscure thing because it never, ever occurred anywhere, anywhere else, else, but always occurred there. Right. So finally, she says, look, I will pay you to go. Let, let's go to my mom's <laughs> We house. just got to see. <laughs> so I went to her mother's house. We parked the car for a period of time, came out, cranked it, no spark. And okay. what she had was an aftermarket electronic ignition setup in the car. Okay. This was back in the days before electronic ignition had become standardized like it is now. And this was an old Maori setup. Right. And I looked around, and there was a radio tower right immediately behind her mother's house, which apparently some kind of way had a radio interference, had was, a RF interference on this particular module, and it would shut the ignition down. Get out. Yeah. That's the only time I've ever seen that in all, all <laughs> my days. But sure enough, and what we ended up doing is taking that out, converting it back to a point set, and never, ever had any more trouble. And, of course, nowadays, electronic ignition is, is standardized. So oh, yeah. really, you got factory stuff, which really doesn't have those kind of problems, at least to that degree, <laughs> that right. I've ever seen. So let's see. we got Art on the line. Good morning, Art. Yes, sir. I got a 97 Park Avenue. Okay. And the door airbag light is on. I don't know what's going on with that thing. Yeah, Art, when the airbag light is on, it means there's a code stored in the memory of the airbag computer. For instance, you know about the, the regular power control module, like a check engine light. Well, this is like that, except it's for the airbag. And there's each of the modules, the more sophisticated modules, are going to have a different computer that runs them. And when there's a malfunction in that system, it's going to set a code. When the code is active in memory, it's going to turn the light on to tell the driver, hey, something's wrong. So you go about fixing that similar to the way you'd fix a check engine light. What you have to do is go in with a different kind of scan tool that can get into the airbag module, read the codes. The code will tell you what circuit is causing the problem. Then you have to go in and pen test and find out what part of that circuit is causing this particular issue. For instance, it could be the clock spring has gone bad. That's one fairly common issue. It could be one of the sensors is unplugged or the wires cut. It could be a Squirrel got under the hood and ate, out, ate through one of the wires. I mean, all kinds of things can cause it. On some of the older cars, there's a module on there called a DERM, a Diagnostic Energy Reserve, and there's a battery in it. So over so many years, that battery can die, and if the battery dies, it'll start putting the light on for that reason. Basically, what it means is that your airbags are not going to function if you have a collision. Okay, now I've got one more other problem. That I got the heat side of the uh, inside the driver's side. Mm-hmm. It's warm, and the passenger side is cold. Yeah, mm-hmm. that can easily happen on that one. Two of the main things that cause that, the simplest thing, you said driver is cold and passenger is warm or opposite? The opposite. The driver is warm and the passenger is yeah. cold. Yeah, the most common thing on that one is that the air condition is a little bit low on refrigerant because the way that system worked, the evaporator core is all the way over on the passenger side. Mm-hmm. And when it gets a little low, it gets less efficient. It's got just enough coal to put out on the passenger side, but by the time it gets over the driver's side, it's warmed up. In other words, it's not really blowing as cold as it should on the passenger side, but it's got some coal. And there's this 80 degrees outside, 60 degrees feels real cool to you. 
but 60 mm-hmm. degrees is not going to come across and cool off that driver's side. You need something in the neighborhood of 40 to 45 degrees coming out of the blower. That's the most common thing. Now, beyond that, there are some actuators and stuff under the dash that can cause it. But on that particular car, I would bet you you got a leak in the system, and it's going to be a little low on refrigerant. Okay, sir. Thank All right. you, sir. Okay, All man. Right. Thanks for calling. Yes, sir. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, got to take one more quick little break, and we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. I'm here with John, an actual Agco automotive customer. I've been taking all of my cars to Lewis for a long time. I go in regularly for all changes, and if they notice anything else wrong, they let me know. It's just like going in for a checkup at the doctor. So you're saying the mechanics at Agco are like physicians? Car doctors. They don't ever miss a diagnosis. And I have three cars with over 100,000 miles on them. Agco suggests bringing in your vehicle once a year for a general inspection. They'll check it out and even let you know if it's best to invest in repairs or possibly look for another vehicle. Yep, regular maintenance with Agco keeps my cars running fine. And regular checkups at the doctor keeps this old 80-year-old in good shape, too. You're 80? John, I hope I look that good when I'm your age. Well, son, I think it's kind of late for that. Oh, I see your wit's pretty sharp, too. So, schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the Automotive Hour. Still got plenty of time left. <laughs> got a question or a comment? You give us a call, 291-6901. We'll get you right straight up to the top of the list. Be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. And at 225 in front of that number, we'll get you to us from anywhere inside the continental United States. And if you know the world code, yeah, 01, then you can reach us from anywhere in the world there you go. at this time, central time. And generally, I get a lot of email this week from a guy in Malaysia okay. who had a little Toyota, had it serviced, and right. now it's starting to hesitate and all that. You know, you put it in gear, it won't go, and then it will go. And mm-hmm. he said, once it gets warmed up, it will start to go okay. Right. And what I told him, generally something like that is going to be either they didn't get the fluid level right, they put the wrong filter on it, or they pinched the gasket on the filter right. when they put it on there. So just an idea of the kinds of things we get from all over. I had another guy from Cape Town, South Africa, sent me an email. I don't wow. recall the nature. I think it was something to do with an oxygen sensor. But, yeah, we get email from virtually all over the world. So. That's great. For a small local site, that, that is wonderful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we really love the folks here in Baton Rouge. But, hey, wherever you are, you That's give us it. a call. We're going to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. And, you know, before we went off the air earlier, Art was talking about his airbag light was on. Correct. Now, that being said, airbag is a restraint-type system. Right. Now, it goes by different acronyms right depending on the manufacturer correct gm when they first started they used airbag it's right. the word airbag came across the dash that's correct well later on as the system progressed and got more efficient in different designs they started calling it sir yes. which is a supplemental, supplemental inflate inflatable restraint, restraint system right. and as it evolved now they're calling it the srs system which is the supplemental restraint system so right. it, it goes, that same system goes by three different names yeah, that I can think three, of maybe more. from the same manufacturer And over different the manufacturers are going to have different names also. Right. Now, one thing that is just a bit complicated or can confuse people is that some cars have air suspension systems on them. They do. Which people will 
commonly call like the rear suspension bags, the part that inflates in the back, they may call that an airbag. Right. Although technically it's not an airbag. It's, it's an, an air, air spring. suspension spring. Right. But that also gets called an airbag, also adding to the confusion. Sure. Because if you see something like air, air. suspension malfunction or uh-huh. whatever pop up on the dash, they may mistakenly just see air and consider it an airbag. Correct. So that's why, because of the complexity and the lack of, a good name? Yeah, standardization. Right. It really tends to confuse people quite a bit. Now, on some of the later model cars, they're getting away from some of these acronyms, which I think is a good thing. They're going to more of an icon-type system, uh-huh. which is a universal icon. So now what you'll see is a picture of a driver with an airbag popping out. Right. A little red light will pop on. And the icons are a little more internationally recognizable because when you consider Toyota, who makes cars all over the world, the letters S-I-R, S-R-S may not mean anything if you're in a country that uses Cyrillic and not alphabet. Right, exactly. But, or if well, you're and it an also, Asian nation where they don't have an alphabet at all, they've got the little symbols and stuff. Right. It, it keeps it keeps their cost down because they can use a symbol now instead of words. So it's like you were saying, a symbol is internationally recognized right. where words would have to be changed for every different country that this vehicle went to. Right, and even if you take just other outlandish examples be maybe a person who has dyslexia or something may have trouble interpreting what these letters mean but a symbol is internationally recognized recognized, and so that's why they're going more to the symbols but in the shops you're still going to see a whole plethora of different acronyms right and very commonly the shops are still going to use them right and internally in the shop in other words, if you say, hey, boss, I got an SRS code. Well, you, know, or, you yeah. know exactly what that means. Yeah, the, the VVT is malfunctioning. I know what that means, but I'm going to always avoid using that with a customer. Sure. Because I don't know whether they do or do not understand, and I don't want to confuse them any further. Well, and like you were saying earlier, you know, you get to the point where if you don't know something, you really don't want to start asking a bunch right. of questions. Right, and that can be a real big issue. I know, like, when I trained Elaine and later on Elizabeth to answer the phones, one good thing is they didn't have all these acronyms already embedded in their mind. Sure, So I've kind of stressed to them, no, talk to people just like you talk to people. Right. Because you are talking to clients here and customers. You're not talking to shop employees. Right. When the shop comes up and tells you something, that's going to be a whole different world. you got to be able to shift gears there. Correct. Because... It's very common. I don't want to have to say supplemental inflatable restraint every time. So I'm going to say SRS. I don't want to say positive crankcase ventilation system. So I'm going to say PCV. Sure. And you and I are. We understand that. We're on the same that. language. We, we're, we're talking the same language in the shop. Right. When you start talking to customers, you have to talk a different language. Right. You talk language they talk. Exactly. Because they are not in the loop of your little common acronyms. And it's kind of sort of rude to do that because people do not understand you do not the whole purpose of the shop is to help the customer sure. not to confuse him not to add to their they're already they're already anguish that they've got sure <laughs> and you know some of these words are kind of involved like for instance dpfe okay it's a differential pressure feedback egr that's a sensor used a lot on ford products that reads whether or not the egr valve which opens. is another acronym exhaust gas recirculation valve opens or not right but to say differential pressure feedback egr every yeah, time yeah. i want to use that word that's a tongue tire yeah it is so i'm gonna say dpfe uh-huh. dpfe sensor 
And you and I are gonna both know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, it's a little plastic thing with two hoses on it. <laughs> it always burns up on Ford. It always Ford. burns up on Ford, yeah. Right. But even when you say EGR, which is an old, old acronym, sure. those have been around late eighties. Yeah, way back in the nineteen eighties. And what EGR is is exhaust gas recirculation. And basically that's what it does. That's it exactly takes the what it does. Unburned exhaust fumes. Mm-hmm. Pulls them back through the intake and reburns them through the intake right. and then puts them back out the exhaust. Well, and the reason they have EGR is because combustion chambers on engines get extremely hot because of the fire in there. Right. And they can deal with that. The cooling system can deal with it to a point. But when it starts to get too hot, it can cause what they call detonation or pinging or any of those types of things where the fuel-air mixture is so hot that's exploding before the spark goes off which is extremely damaging to the engine. Because as the piston's coming up, that pressure is trying to push it back down before it reaches the fulcrum to go over That's on correct. the crankshaft. So it's extremely damaging to the engine. When that happens, the oxides of nitrogen also go sky high because you're getting incomplete combustion. So what EGR does, it says, okay, i got to cool this fuel-air mixture down, but it doesn't have anything at its disposal other than exhaust gas. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have water it can inject into the cylinder. And so what it does is it opens a little valve, it ducks burned exhaust gas back into the intake, which is low in oxygen, so it's going to subdue the combustion process just enough to lower that temperature. And it can do this very, very quickly. You know, we're not talking about a big drawn-out affair. This can happen 20 times a second. Right. But it's going to flood enough exhaust gas back into the intake to cool the fuel-air mixture to prevent the pinging and detonation, which causes damage to the engine. And I hear a lot of times people say, oh, it's just an EGR code. I'm not going to worry about it. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it's not just an EGR code. Yeah, that's preventing extreme damage to the engine. Because if you allow detonation to go on, it'll burn a hole in the top of the piston oh, yeah. real fast. I mean, it'll just eat through it like a cutting torch. Yep. Because you got an aluminum piston, and maybe it's supposed to be dealing with 2,200-degree combustion chamber pressures and temperatures, and those temperatures go up to 3,000 degrees, you're going to have some ramifications. Not only that, but the combustion chamber pressure goes sky high. You remember the Mary, one of our first calls, talking about the blown head gasket? Right. Well, one of the things that happens in the overheat is the expansion of the metal. But another thing that happens, the engine may start to detonate because it's gotten so hot the fuel air is going off, which increases the pressure in the combustion chamber exponentially, which can blow right through the head gasket. Mm-hmm. And it's The head gasket being the weakest point between the two pieces. Right. What happens is that when the engine goes to overheat situation, first thing it's going to start to disable non-essential systems, like make shut the Air AC condition. down and all that. Uh-huh. It'll start to disable systems like the cylinders and try to pump air through to cool itself back down. Right. It'll cut the flow of the transmission to the radiator to lower the temperature, the temperature. load on it, but it'll also flood exhaust gas back at the intake to keep those pressures down. So those little computers are pretty smart. They do a lot of things. But when you do that, it's not uncommon on an overheat situation to see EGR codes or maybe map sensor codes. Reason being, it's flooding exhaust gas back in the intake trying to cool itself down. The map sensor says, I got too much pressure in the intake. It's going to throw a code for that. Right. Doesn't mean you got a map sensor problem. It just means the engine was overheating when this occurred. Had a gentleman come in earlier this week and had a little Mustang that had overheated right. pretty bad. And he had a pile of engine codes in there. And he was saying, well, I'd like to get all those guys. I said, well, let's do this. Let's clear them all out. You go drive it for a couple of weeks. They will come back, or some of them will come back. If When they do, we will diagnose them because I can do it right now, but I have to go through each one of these codes. There's 20 codes in here. You're going to be chasing your tail I'm on something spend that may not 10 be 10 hours 
And I may come back and tell you most of these weren't really a problem. They were just part of the overheat. So in that case, what makes more sense is let's clear them out. You drive around a couple of weeks. Let's see what comes back, and we'll deal with that. Sure. Because this map sensor code may not be a map sensor code at all. It may be that there's too much exhaust gas in the intake because of the overheat. This misfire code may not be a misfire code. It may be cylinders were being shut down. Because we know the engine was overheated. That's right. And it, most manufacturers now will set a overheat code. That's right. With a temperature of what the engine read at what that it, time. Yeah, and it gets to a certain point. It can't go any higher. I know on a lot of them it's set at 240 or 245. Some of them will go up to 260. But as a general rule, when an engine gets to 260, it's pretty much done. probably not going to survive it or it's not going to survive it in the same state it was it in was before. before. <laughs> right. It's kind of like a human being your average temperature is 98.6 degrees and you might survive 101 you might even survive 102 but if your temperature goes to 105 you're probably not going to make it and if you do you're probably not ever going to be yourself again right because that kind of temperature does extreme damage damage. same thing with a car that kind of temperature when you start getting up to 106 excuse me 60 uh, 260 degrees right there are dynamics going on inside that engine with cylinder pressures and expansion and parts changing, and the cylinder walls are expanding more. The pistons are expanding more than the cylinder walls, so we're running dry without lubrication. I mean, most yeah, of the time— it's pretty detrimental. Yeah, even if you can get it running again, it's probably never going to run quite the same. It may start using all. It may, like Mary's car, start to overheat right. continuously. One of the things we see a lot is people will have an overheat, have it repaired— Next thing you know, the radiator hose blows out. Well, they figure, okay, we had an old radiator hose, so they put the radiator radiator hose on. Well, then the radiator tank splits. Well, it's an old radiator. Yeah, and And then something else happens. It's because this excessive pressure that's building up in the engine is finding the weakest point. Sure. And as you replace these components, that part is now a little bit stronger. So it goes to the next weakest point. Pushes to the next weakest point. It's always going to be the weakest link in the chain. Mm -hmm. So these are just kind of a few of the things that happen with an overheat over over and above the overheat. When you go in and you fix the symptom, fix what caused the overheat, you've corrected that problem. But But now the collateral damage that goes along with that, you may or may not have. And you can't really get mad at the shop because you keep having problems. Right. It's just part of what happens a lot of times. Hey, we'll take one last quick little break and be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. I'm here with Stuart, life insurance rep and Agco Automotive customer. That's me. So, Stuart, as an Agco customer driving a car with 245,000 miles, you believe in preventative maintenance, right? I sure do. You know, having your car checked out annually can prevent major repairs, just like an annual insurance review. That reminds me of the old insurance story about the poor lady at her husband's funeral who asked her agent about death benefits. And he informs her that old Joe's first wife is still the beneficiary. Oh, an annual review would have helped, huh? That's why Agco suggests bringing in your vehicle once a year for a general inspection to get an honest opinion on the maintenance and repairs needed to help keep your car running. Oh, I'm definitely a believer. So, on another note, my wife wants to increase my life insurance policy by a couple million. Should I be worried? All I can say is some flowers and a gift card to the spa couldn't hurt. Mmm, good point, Stuart. For the rest of you out there, schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your wow. host, Louis Alzan. <laughs> it is the final segment already. It is already. the final segment already. This show's flown by for some reason. I'm telling you. Good topic, I guess. Great topic. <laughs> there you go. Hey, you got a question, a comment? You just call. Still got a few minutes left. Go ahead and get you an answer and try to help you out. 
Let's go over a few more of those acronyms since that was what we promised to do. All righty, we can sure do that. I'm going to start with the A's, okay? A slash C, right? Everybody knows what that means, yep. right? That yep. is air conditioning, right? All right, now, there's also another acronym that is AC without the slash. Okay. That is alternating current. That's right. So that's two completely different components. Yeah, just a slash difference. With the slash difference in mm-hmm. them. ATF. Right. Automatic transmission fluid. Right. Or it could be alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. I thought, <laughs> I, hey, I thought that too. Especially the firearms part. Yeah, yeah, that's how, that's how our mind works. We're from the South. <laughs> <laughs> and even automatic transmission fluids are so vastly oh, man. many there's got to be 35 or 40 different ones so even though there's an acronym there's no standardization no there's not for instance even same manufacturer right well gm's got dexron they got dexron three and they got dexron six right that's just three for gm just for gm all right ford's got mercon they've got mercon five they got mercon lv they got mercon sp oh geez three that's, or four other ones that i, I know that's of four right off yeah top of your and, head. and that's not nearly about mercon premium right there's a whole pile of different mercons same thing with Toyota. Well, and Chrysler uses ATF with theirs. Generally, they have like ATF plus three, ATF plus four. Toyota has got the T4, which is their standard, well, as standard as anything gets. Most of the later model ones take T4 until they get to be real late models, which then go to WS. WS, which is world standard. Right. But the old ones used to take Dexron, right. the same as GM did. And then somewhere, I don't remember exactly when, they went to the T4 and mm-hmm. kept it for years. Pretty much standardized it across their line. And then, and then four or five years ago, they started going to WS, the world standard, which is a premium. It's a synthetic fluid. Right. Most of the newer Toyotas are going to take WS, and you can't put the T4 in it because you'll end up doing well, damage. You can, but like you said, you're yeah. going to cause damage. You can, but damage. then you'll come to see Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not going to be pleasant. That's yeah. right. And, you know, I've noticed most on most of your Toyota dipsticks, the ones that do have a dipstick, mm-hmm. They are labeled with the type of fluid that goes right, in that which unit. is real handy to have on there. Now, that being said, the only ones that have a dipstick. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Toyota units don't have a dipstick well, anymore. most of the newer transmissions are getting away from dipsticks because the fluid level is so, so, so critical on them that they said a dipstick is just not accurate enough for them. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they, they want you to use a different procedure. Which I mean, is that's a, the cover story anyway. I think it's to keep the consumer out of the transmission. I think it is. Who you knows? Know, fluid service. Somebody doesn't do it correctly and right. put the wrong fluid. $3,500 unit. Reading a dipstick is extremely difficult. I've got an article on my website, How to Check Transmission Fluid, goes uh-huh. into reading a dipstick. And you wouldn't think something as simple as that. Well, you easy. Just pull it out, wipe it off, put it back in, and read it. No, it's, it's not, not that, that easy. easy. There's a whole bunch to it. And we get even shops sure. that refer cars to us with transmission problems. And you tell them, it sounds like low fluid, man. No, I checked fluid. You check it, and it's two quarts low. Right. Put two quarts in it, the unit starts working That's like right. it's supposed they to. They did check it, but they just didn't check it correctly uh-huh. because there's a whole involved procedure. What can make it worse is, let's say you've got something like a filter that's improperly installed that's aerating the fluid. Well, it may pump that fluid up way high on the dipstick, make it look like it's over full, uh-huh. and it's actually under full, and it's aerating the fluid. So there's all, all kinds of variables. Speaking of variables, one thing I want to talk about just a little bit, and that's variable cam timing. Or variable valve timing. Right. Or variable valve timing and electronic infinite control. Right. Which it, is, it, right. It, there's several different layers VTEC, of the uh, Honda products like to use what they call VTEC, V-E-T-E-C. Or I-TEC, infinite valve timing control. Right. A lot of them, like Toyotas, will use a VVT, variable valve timing. All those acronyms kind of sort of go back to the same thing. And you and I were talking just a little bit before the show about the variable valve timing and how this is 
sort of the natural evolution of control of the combustion and uh, engine processes. For instance, on the, the rudimentary engines that they built oh, a million years ago, or say a little like a Briggs and Stratton or something, basically everything was mechanically controlled. The cam was timed to the crankshaft with a and chain with a chain or a gear or whatever that was the only timing and nothing right. varied later on they found out that if we vary the ignition timing in the event we can get better performance over a wider range of rpm so at an idle we want this much advance uh-huh. as we speed the engine up we want more advance and so they came out with centrifugal advances two little weights that would sling out as the engine turned faster which would advance the timing we would turn the turn the plate like you said which would advance mechanically the timing. rotate the plate which would advance the ignition timing right later on they found out that hey if we put a vacuum module on here we can get even more refinement under certain conditions we can get this timing more advanced or less advanced or faster or, or faster whatever. or whatever we want right that was variable ignition timing now at some point in the evolution of cars, they found out, you know, if we vary the valve timing, we, which is the second part of the combustion process, right. we got the valve timing, we got the ignition timing and all that. If we can vary our valve timing, we can make a lot more power and we can control idle and we control emissions a lot better. Sure. So that's why they came out with all these different sensors and gears and sprockets. That is still more or less in the mechanical phase right now. It is. Can't say what's going to happen tomorrow, but it's done mechanically. Well, I mean, as things have evolved, I'm looking for it to go electronic Some shortly. type of electronic valve yeah. timing. They haven't done it yet, but what it does is sort of solenoids. It's mostly hydraulic in operation. It can vary the valve timing depending on what they want out of the engine. Right. Now, the next evolution in that is fuel timing, and that's with, like, the direct injection. And with a standard injector, the injector is not firing into the cylinder, contrary no, it's, to it's common belief. firing into the intake, intake port, port before it gets to the head. Right, and it's sitting in that intake port until the valve opens. Correct. And it's really not so, so super critical. At high speed, that injector may be open 360 degrees. It just stays open. Sure. And just, when the valve opens and closes, it controls the fuel running in and out of the cylinder. Now, with direct injection, the injector is in the combustion chamber. And they can time the fuel delivery exactly to the combustion event. If they find they've got insufficient fuel in the cylinder, they can fire a second time and put a little more fuel into the combustion event. Right. So what this does is things like EGR are not as necessary because if they want to control the temperature, temperature they can just dump a little more fuel in there now and let the octane and the fuel control it. Mm-hmm. Whereas they couldn't do that before because they had to stop back up, open the valve again. Well, they can't do that. So... They can control way more factors. Now, instead of just controlling the ignition, they're controlling the ignition, they're controlling the valve timing, and they're controlling the fuel fuel timing. Right. So this is why we see these little 3.5-liter engines that are putting out 300, 400 horsepower, whereas not too long ago it would have taken a 6-liter engine to do the same amount of horsepower. Sure. It's just a much smaller engine, much more efficient because of all the controls they have on it. And a lot of this is being driven by emissions they want to get right. the emissions as good as they can they want to get fuel economy as good as they can but they want to also bring performance up well, to sell automobiles and performance is really the i guess the beneficiary of all this because most of the things that increase fuel mileage and increase or decrease emissions can also in another way go to enhance performance right 
So they've got a lot, a lot, a lot of things like that coming out. And I see we're rolling out of time here when you start winding it on up. All right. If you didn't hear the acronym you're interested in, you give us a call. We've got a big old list here, and we'll go over some more next week. Or send us an email. There you go. Even better yet, just send us an email. We'll get that on the list for you. That's what David did, and I think he got all his questions asked. I think we covered all of them. (laughs) And tell everybody just how much we really do appreciate them listening to the Automotive Hour every morning, whether you listen on the radio or listen on the podcast. Right. You can always tell your friends and get more people listening for us. and. That way we can keep doing the show. That's right. And the absolute best thing you can do if you want to reward us or say thank you is go to your podcast service and give us a written review. If you give us a written review, the podcast people who put these out, look at those. The sites or the, the podcasts that get the most reviews are the ones they put up close to the top of the list because they figure they're more popular. Uh-huh. And also the amount of the reviewers, if you've got 185 star reviews, you're probably going to get moved up close to the top of the list. So when someone types in auto repair, you're a lot likely to come up. So more people are going to listen, which means we can keep doing the show. There you go. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.